The text for this morning's sermon comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, the verses 16 to 21. This picks up right after the, the previous reading, reading that we read together. And so we'll read our text now, starting, starting at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thus far our text. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever gone on a long road trip? Perhaps you've taken a road trip with your family or with some friends. What was the destination for your road trip? Perhaps a campground, a city, a majestic geographical landscape, a family reunion? Let's imagine now that we're on a road trip. Maybe you're a parent or a child in the car. You're excited because we're heading off to a wonderful destination, the Grand Canyon. You've never seen it before. And you've heard that there's a great campground near the canyon, off the beaten path, that gives an incredible view of the sunrise and the sunset over the edge of the canyon. You're well prepared. You've researched the campground online. You've found a travel brochure, and you've spoken with a few others who have gone there. You're well prepared and you're excited. But you've been driving for a long time now. The kids in the back are asking, are we there yet? And maybe you're feeling the same way. In fact, it feels like you might be lost. The travel brochure gave driving instructions to the campground, but you've been on the road, the same road, for a long while now. Did you miss a turn? In the next town, you pull over, knock on a door. An old man opens and gives you a big smile. He guesses where you're going because nobody else has reason to come this way. And his excitement starts to build your excitement again. He confirms the directions on the travel brochure and assures you there's no better place on earth to catch the sunrise and the sunset than this particular campground right near the edge of the canyon. Brothers and sisters, in our text this morning, we see a similar picture. Except we're not on a road trip 
to a majestic, to catch a majestic sunrise over the edge of the Grand Canyon. As believers, we're on the road together to witnessing the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ on his great day. In this letter, the Apostle Peter provides believers in the early church with eyewitness testimony of the glory of the Lord Jesus. And he reminds them of the testimony, the trustworthy witness of the Old Testament scriptures. He encourages the church, just like the old man in, the, in our image, with an assurance of their final destination. They will see the majesty of the Lord Jesus when he returns again. And he encourages us with the same message. Keep pressing on. Follow the directions you've already been given. The dawning of the great day will be majestic. And that brings us to our theme for this morning. On the testimony of reliable witnesses, we are sure to behold the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. We'll see first the eyewitness of the apostles and second the prophetic witness of the scriptures. First, the witness of the apostles. In this letter, the apostle Peter has come near to the end of his life. In verse 14, he writes, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. But it's not the case that he will die of old age. At the end of John's gospel, the Lord Jesus had told Peter that he would be taken to a place where he did not want to go. He would glorify God by his death. And in line with this, the tradition of the church is that Peter was crucified. So now as he faces this death, Peter has a message for the early church and for us. In the first chapter, he exhorts his audience to grow in seven qualities. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Be all the more diligent, he says, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. He impresses upon them, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter's goal is to remind, so that after his departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Then, as the text for this morning's sermon begins... Peter lays down some of the foundation for his teaching and instructions. He writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Until this point in the letter, Peter has mostly written from his own perspective. He says, I intend always to remind you and I think it right as long as I am in this body. But now he says, we. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. Who is the we? In verse 1, we notice that Peter had already spoken this way. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. He probably refers to himself and to the other apostles who were commissioned by the Lord Jesus to make disciples of all nations. The apostles, Peter writes, did not follow cleverly devised myths. They stand in contrast to others, he implies, 
who do follow myths. Just after our text, Peter will go on to speak of false prophets who arose among the people of the Old Testament and also predict that there will be false teachers among the new believers in the church as well. These false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Instead of these false stories, Peter and the other apostles made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we saw that the day of the Lord has a special meaning in Scripture. It refers to the return of the Lord Jesus in judgment. In a similar way, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, whenever we encounter that phrase in the New Testament, it always looks forward to the day of Jesus' return. In Matthew chapter 24, we see the same words of our passage in a clear reference to the end times. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. But no one can accuse Peter of speaking myths, false stories built from his own imagination. The gospel he speaks is pure truth because he and a couple other apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. This almost seems like a change in direction. If Peter's attention so far has been on the future return of the Lord, why does he now refer back to something in the past? You can only give witness testimony about something that has already happened, not something that is still to come. Well, to answer this question, we must identify first what Peter and the other apostles were eyewitnesses of. He writes, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Because we've already read Matthew chapter 17, this picture should be clear to us. Peter is speaking about the transfiguration. In Matthew 17, we had read that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So the we of the entire group of apostles has been narrowed to a smaller group, Peter, James, and John. And Peter looks back to this event from the past because it is full of promise for the future. During the transfiguration, Peter writes that Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father. Matthew 17 fills in some details. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So the transfiguration gives the apostles a glimpse into the past and the future, a picture of Jesus, who Jesus truly is. When the Lord Jesus came to earth the first time, he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. But before he came to the earth, he had glory with the Father in heaven. In John 17, Jesus prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. After he ascended into heaven, he returned to this same glory. 
Revelation 1 describes this glory in a way that is similar to the picture of the transfiguration. I quote, His face was like the sun shining in full strength. But as Peter now recalls the event that he witnessed, he highlights one key event, one key aspect for us. He and the other two apostles were not only eyewitnesses, but they were also witnesses who heard with their ears. Twice he refers to a heavenly voice. The voice was born to him by the majestic glory, and this very voice born from heaven. This voice came from God the Father. The Father said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So in this event, God the Father himself testified to the identity of his Son. And when we read his words about the Son in light of the rest of the gospel, we discover some amazing truths about the riches of God's grace. Because in our text, we read that the Father loves the Son. But though the Father loves his Son, he sent him to the earth to live and to die as a man. Though the Father loves his Son, Jesus would later cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though the Father loves his Son, he poured out his wrath upon him. How can all of these things be true at the same time. The answer is profound, brothers and sisters. By amazing grace, the Father also loves us. He planned to reconcile us to himself as beloved children, beloved sons and daughters. And the only way this could happen was if his only begotten beloved son would bear our sin on the cross. How deep the Father's love for us that he should give his only son to make wretches his treasure. The father loves the son and he is also well pleased with the son. We know that our Lord Jesus lived in full obedience to the father. In John 10 he says, For this reason the father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Father is well pleased by such a Son. Where we as children fall short each day again of perfect obedience, and would never by nature obey a single commandment of God, the Lord Jesus fulfilled the law and perfectly fo followed the Father's plan. So by grace, the Father counts the obedience of Christ as ours through faith. The Father is well pleased with us because he is well pleased with his Son. Congregation, what Peter saw and heard is so much encouragement for us. Because what Peter saw, we too will see. In fact, everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, will see the Lord Jesus returning on the clouds of heaven. For the unbeliever, this will be terrifying. The honor and glory of Jesus will result in their shame and condemnation because they lived 
as though he does not have honor and glory, as though he would not return. But for the believer, for the child of God, for you, brothers and sisters, the honor and glory of Jesus will result in your honor and glory too. Those who hear of the majesty of Jesus and respond by honoring him in their lives will be full of joy on the day of his return. This truth, it reaches into the past and it brings meaning for the future. But this truth also reaches into the present, the here and now. Because although we cannot see it, the Lord Jesus reigns as king in glory even now. Before Stephen was stoned, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. When Jesus had ascended into heaven, he returned to all the majesty, honor, and glory that the apostles saw for a moment during the transfiguration. He lives in this majesty now. In the world today and among Christians, there are cleverly devised myths. Many people do not believe that the Lord Jesus will return or that he reigns in majesty. Some people may confess that he reigns, that he will return, but they don't live like he will return. Do you believe the testimony Peter gives about the Lord Jesus? Do you believe that he is the beloved Son of God with whom the Father is well pleased? Do you believe that he rules from his heavenly throne over all creation? Do you believe that he will return, that you will see his majesty? If yes, then are you willing to live as his subject, to submit your heart and your entire life to him? Brothers and sisters, read Peter's testimony and behold your God and Savior seated on his throne. While we see through Peter's eyes now, one day we will see him with our own eyes. And that brings us to our second point, the witness of the scriptures. If we step back and compare for a moment the Apostle Peter to the old man who gave us directions on our way to the campground, we can trust that these directions are reliable. He's giving us eyewitness testimony. He's seen, he's been to the campground before. But he's not the only witness we've received. Our excitement about the destination had grown by reading travel brochures about the Grand Canyon hearing other descriptions of the remarkable sunrises and sunsets. Peter's not the only one telling us about the majesty of the returning sun. So in the next part of this text, the Apostle Peter pivots from his own witness of the sun's majesty to the witness of those who came before him. Peter was not the first to speak of God's plan of salvation. He was one in a long line of those whom God had sent to bring his word to his people. We don't know the Lord Jesus only because of the witness of Peter and the apostles, but also because of the witness that we find everywhere else in Scripture. In verse 19, we'll pick up our text, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. 
Here, as a point of clarification, Peter is referring to the Old Testament prophets, not the prophecies and prophets that we hear of in the New Testament. But at the same time, we can understand what he says about the prophets to apply to all the books of the Old Testament. We may ask ourselves, did the Old Testament scriptures need to be more fully confirmed? Isn't the word of God reliable whether or not we've seen or can see that it has been, is being fulfilled? Of course, the answer is yes. But as believers of the New Testament age, the Lord has blessed us with a more full picture, a more full revelation of his redemptive plan. We now have the New Testament, the witness of and testimony of the apostles. So we can see that God's promises to his people are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. The witness of the apostles more fully confirms the trustworthy witness of the Old Testament. After referring to the Old Testament prophets, Peter gives a command. He says, To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, this picture of a lamp, a dark place, the day and the morning star is probably familiar to us. It might ring a bell. Last week, the Apostle Paul had used a similar picture to contrast children of the day with children of the night. And there are so many other examples in Scripture. In Psalm 119, we sang, Your word, it is a lamp to guide my feet, a lantern shining on the path before me. For their part, Peter and the other apostles certainly paid attention to the Old Testament. On Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, Peter himself speaks to the crowds. The crowds were wondering how the apostles were speaking in other languages. And Peter explains, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he goes on to quote a passage from the book of Joel to explain that the prophecies of the Old Testament were being fulfilled in these days. A little later, he quotes from Psalm 16 and then Psalm 110 to show that these psalms are fulfilled and speak about Christ. We must pay attention to the Old Testament because it speaks about the Lord Jesus. And for his part, the Lord Jesus himself certainly taught us to pay attention to the Old Testament. On the very day of his resurrection, Jesus said to two of his sad and disappointed disciples who were on their way to the village of Emmaus, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. During the transfiguration, did you notice the ones who were speaking with Jesus? Moses, associated with the law, and Elijah, one of the most well-known prophets. But it was not them who was transfigured, it was Jesus whose appearance changed. Because he is the main character in this passage, in the transfiguration, and in fact, in all of scriptures. Every 
scripture passage has been anticipating, explaining, and pointing towards him. So brothers and sisters, we would do well to pay attention to the Old Testament. Sometimes we hear from fellow Christians that they would rather put aside the Old Testament. And we ourselves might have questions too about difficult passages that deal with the holiness of God and the destruction of unclean, unholy nations. On the surface, the Old Testament has many laws that we can find difficult to interpret in our context today. Some might even say, now that the Lord Jesus has come and we have the New Testament, can't we just put aside the old? There's, there's no need for it anymore. Brothers and sisters, we cannot do this because both Testaments are God's holy scriptures. We need both of them, old and new, to fill out the picture of who Jesus is and what he has done. And we also need both to fill out the picture of what is to come, what lies ahead of us. The scriptures are like a lamp shining in a dark place. But we must not leave this lamp at home when we head out the door for work and school. We must carry it with us throughout our day so that all of our circumstances are placed in the light of the Lord's rule and his return. One day we can be sure that the light of this lamp will meet the dawning of the day, the rising of the morning star. The morning star in our passage is likely the planet Venus, which is visible to us only when the day breaks and the sun shines upon it in the morning. A lamp, a lamp is for the darkness, but you don't rely on a lamp when the sun shines in full force and you can see the morning star. In Revelation 22, the Lord Jesus gives us a hint about what all this means. He says, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The rays of the lamp, the word of God that shines the majesty of Christ to us, it will one day join together with the radiant light of the full majesty of Christ as he returns. And in this abundant light, we'll see the Lord Jesus so clearly. In our text, after teaching about the content of Scripture, who it reveals, the Lord Jesus, Peter goes on to teach about the source of Scripture, who it is that is speaking. He writes, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Peter makes clear here that the source of prophecy has nothing to do with the prophet. And this is an important point in light of the false prophets who he would later warn the believers about in this letter. Prophecy comes from the Lord alone, and prophecy happens in the Lord's timing not ours. When God spoke to his prophets in the Old Testament, sometimes he sent them visions or, or dreams. But it's not as though he sent the prophet this vision and then left them on their own to figure out what it meant. No, God, just as he was the one who sent the vision, was also the one who caused the prophet to understand that vision faithfully. The source of Scripture is God Himself, so we can be sure that every interpretation we read in its pages is true. It comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
What is revealed in Scripture is a true representation of who God is and what He has done for us. But in the closing verse of our text, Peter takes this lesson to another level. He says, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's statement gives us such confidence in not only the message, but every single word of Scripture. The Apostle Paul explains this in a different way. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't use the particular gifts of each human author, the ones who spoke or wrote the original Scriptures. We might think of how the four Gospels tell many of the same stories, but they're written in different ways by different men. No, this means that God is the divine author. The divine author who works through human authors of individual books to write the full story of Scripture. The one who also inspired Peter to write these words to the early church and who speaks to us through them today. So brothers and sisters, if we've ever had any doubts about how the Old Testament and the New Testament belong together how the different types of books, narratives, poetry, prophecy, all fit together, we've learned this morning that they center around the Lord Jesus Christ. While it's made up of 66 different books, the Bible is perfectly united because it is written by one divine author, the Holy Spirit. He shines the same light of God's redemption in Christ through each one so that we're left with one lamp that shines in a dark place. Again, we can step back. We can know that all the prophecies about Jesus' life and work on earth have been fulfilled and that the Old Testament and New Testament together give a wonderful picture of His majesty. But Scripture also looks forward and speaks of a day that is to come. As Peter teaches about, we look forward to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day yet to dawn and a morning star yet to rise in our hearts. So what must we do now? Since we know that every promise of God's word comes from God himself, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we will do well to pay attention to them. When God speaks, his servants, like Samuel, must listen, for God does not speak lightly. We must take the prophetic word seriously because it has instructions and implications for us. In the text this morning, Peter teaches about the confidence that believers can have in beholding the majesty of the Lord Jesus. As we read earlier in the chapter, he does so in the context of explaining to the church, how they are to live. And that's the case throughout Scripture. When God teaches us something, when He gives to us a promise, He places these doctrines among our daily lives. They are not just to be learned, they are to be lived. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So let us treasure the word of God, carrying it in our heart, being instructed by it until the light of the lamp joins with the dawn of the day. 
brothers and sisters, in a manner of speaking, we're all on the same road trip. Sometimes the road feels long. Sometimes it feels as though we've been on it for a while and we should have seen more signs that we're on the right track. But the Apostle Peter encourages us, if we accept his testimony, if we walk by faith and live with a longing to behold the majesty of the Lord Jesus as our destination, then we're on the right track. Peter doesn't give us any new information but he refreshes us by painting a picture of that majesty and by reminding us to see the signposts along the way to discover the glimpses all of Scripture gives us of the Son's majesty. And it's beautiful that this message comes to us from the Apostle Peter in his old age. Peter, whom Jesus foretold, would deny him three times before the rooster crowed, who, when he had done so, only then remembered Jesus foretelling this. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the same Peter who Jesus told three times to feed his sheep. Peter knew the importance of being reminded about how to live and what to live for. As he comes to the end of his life, he looks ahead to a death for the sake of Christ, a death that will remind him one last time of the gospel because it had been foretold. But then, his suffering, he knows it will be over and he will enter into eternal life with his Savior and King. So as he faces that glorious future, he in turn reminds every believer about this gospel. I was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus' majesty, he assures us. And the scriptures witness to him as well. Keep marching along because the road leads to the majesty of the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, on the testimony of these reliable witnesses, we are sure to behold the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. Amen. Let us now respond by singing praises to our majestic God from hymn 43, the verses 1 through 6.